Mothers are the queens of the castle. But let's be real. It's not all ball gowns and glass slippers. On this podcast, we're giving you a peek behind the throne at the privilege and responsibility of wearing the crown. My name is Helen Hope Kimbrough, and I'm a proud wife and mom of two adult sons. And I'm Charlita Hatch, a proud wife, married to my high school sweetheart, and a proud mom to two little ones. Get ready as we share jewels with each other and you around all things connected to motherhood. Hello, so good to see you today. Uh, We are back with part two of Black Maternal Health um, for Behind the Throne podcast. Uh, Charlita and I, the last time, got an opportunity to really share um, our birth stories. And we also shared some statistics around Black maternal health. And I really feel that this topic has resonated so much with our audience that we wanted to make certain that we did a part two of this. And so that's what we're doing today. Um, And I also believe that we'll end up circling back to talk about this topic again and again. What do you think, Charlita? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is something that, you know, as Black women, as Black mothers, it's 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 our own stories. We still deal with it postpartum, but we also still want to help, you know, and share for, for other women so that we can continue to increase and improve our Black maternal health. And, and there's so many different ways we can go with this topic. I can't imagine that we'll stop. I know, I know. And one of the things that I do want to kind of share, um, we have Dr. Mala Freeman Kwaku, but I'm going to call her Dr. Mala Freeman tonight, uh, who is a healthcare provider with Arboretum Gynecology located here in Charlotte. And we are excited to have her as our special guest this today. And uh, she has approximately 25 years of experience and her patients love her. They sing her praises. And so I thought it would be great to bring her on just to get her expertise and also her perspective as well. Um, And level setting this topic, again, we wanted to we want to talk to doulas. We want to talk to uh, other professionals in this space, but wanted to level set and actually speak with a gynecologist around this topic. So thank you so much, Mala, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here and be able to talk with you ladies about this very important topic. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And so as we uh, begin, I want to know just, you know, I sent you a clip of our episode and wanted to know just your thoughts around our part one of Black Maternal Health. It was a very interesting episode. It was some time ago when I watched it, but there were two things that really stood out to me about watching it. Um, It was very interesting to hear about the birth experience from a patient standpoint. I mean, obviously I've delivered, I don't even know how many babies at this point. Um, And my patients that I've taken care of, you know, sometimes they will tell me after their, um, care or after their deliveries, like, oh, I remember when you came in and you said this and you did that, and this is how I felt. And I'm talking them through the process and I'm talking them through what's getting ready to happen or do they need an epidural and this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, but to hear someone, uh, the two of you sort of relay your experience from start to finish, I, I tried to be very mindful while you were speaking and not sort of in that usual mindset that doctors can sometimes be in or healthcare professionals can kind of be in, which is what are the cliff notes? Like we get to get to the the bottom line and just sort of be really present Mm -hmm. um, and hearing what you had to say. And it really, 
uh, resonated with me that how much fear you had, um, some, uh, you know, anxiety in the process, how, you know, certain things that happened during that process is for both of you were a little bit traumatic. Uh, and I felt a little sad because I know sometimes those things happen. And of course, you know, you two are telling your two stories, but it made me kind of hope that if N equals 100, that everyone doesn't feel that way. I mean, obviously some people have very easy deliveries and there's nothing particular happens, um, but it doesn't mean that they themselves don't internally process things and are having sort of angst. And so that was the one thing that stuck out, stood out with me was just hearing two women who I did not deliver tell me your side of what you felt was happening. And, and then the other thing that I heard when you were speaking was how things were happening and I could understand from the physician standpoint what the physician mm -hmm. was probably thinking, mm -hmm. but how there was maybe a little bit of disconnect between what was what the doctor was thinking and doing and mm -hmm. maybe what you were experiencing and understanding. And yeah. I think that that disconnect is probably what led to a little bit of the fear and the anxiety. Yeah. Yep. And you know, I think uh, one of the things I shared with my mom is that it was hard for me. So, you know, 39, you know, older millennial to even just enjoy pregnancy because there's so much information. And so when my mom was, you know, having us, you know, it was so delightful, you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, she didn't even know what the genders were going to be, but for us, it feels like, Okay, now you gotta get the cystic fibrosis test. You're high risk. You gotta get this test. You gotta well, and then it feels like every time you go in for the heartbeat test, you never can find the heartbeat the first like five seconds, and that's like the longest five seconds ever. And so it's like every single time it feels like it's something. And I know that information is power, but sometimes I'm like, I wish we didn't have all this information. And so then you go into the birth to your point, the fear. And I will tell you with my circle of mom friends, it is more common that people feel the way I'm feeling than what you probably hope because wow. it's so much information. I mean, we have a friend in our circle, in our circle who died. Uh, wow. given birth and uh, she got a blood clot. And, um, and that's like, you know, in the last six years. And so it feels like with all that information and all that knowledge, you're like, I don't want it to be me. And when uh, then as a black woman, it feels like you're in the top 10 for everything, heart disease, blood pressure, diabetes, maternal health and breast cancer. And so then you got that extra fear. So I say that to you to say, like, I appreciate the fact that it, at least when you listen to it, it sounds a little bit like you felt empathetic, like, oh, man, I really wish they had me because then I would have told them, you know, you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's one of the questions that, you know, we posed here, too, was like, I've always known my physicians. Um, my parents made it a point to establish relationships with my physicians, my dentists, like all of those things. Either they were leaders in the community or they attended the church that I went to. And there are many people who they don't, it's a priority for me to know my physician and to have relationship with her. But there are many people that don't see that as a priority. And so uh, with that, 
Um, how do you establish that or how do you look or how do you feel patients should look for a physician uh, to try to uh, engage in something like Black maternal health, but just health overall? That's a difficult question. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if you're talking about obstetrical care, because, you know, the problem now is medicine is really, really changing. Yes. And, you know, just to give some of your viewers background, you know, I completed residency in... 2002 and came here to work for my practice. And this is the only job I've ever had, which is, which is never happens. Like doctors don't do that. Um, But I came to Charlotte because I felt like it was a wonderful city. My partner that I started working with, Dr. Uh, Sophia Page, Mm -hmm. um, had a wonderful practice um, in a wonderful area of town. And we had a one, we have a wonderful population of patients at our most, we had three full-time physicians, and we have one part-time physician who I'm still working with, um, providing gynecology services, but we were were a small, intimate group. Mm -hmm. And when I first arrived, it wasn't completely unusual. There were still a few practices in the city that were independently owned, you know, not owned by hospitals. And so that wasn't completely unique, but it wasn't too long after I arrived where most of the practices were pretty much bought up by the hospitals. And it does create a different dynamic. Um, what we then saw is that some of the practices that started off as maybe four or five people became six, seven or eight people. You throw in about four or five midwives and you have a few groups in the city that are like mega groups. Um, and there's some of them that are, you know, even small groups that are owned by the hospital. But then sometimes what they would do is they would have they would take call with other groups. And so instead of your doctor being one in three like we were, um, your chances of being one in three of being delivered by your doctor, which were actually really higher than that. Because if you needed a C-section and it was supposed to be scheduled, we always scheduled our own patients. If you needed to be induced for a medical reason, we usually only induced our own patients. And nobody does that. (laughs) Nobody does that anymore. And when we were doing it, very few people were even considering that. You know, a doctor could come in if they wanted to, if it was a special patient. But in general, you know, most doctors didn't do that. So it's hard because 10 years ago, even 20 years ago, you could have come to a group where there's five doctors and you could have probably, you know, maybe seen your doctor more than not because there's a smaller group. But now the way it is, is if you come to a group that has five, seven, eight doctors and four midwives or seven doctors, a lot of times the way the hospitals structure their practices is that you come in and you are really, you don't get, you don't really get a choice. You come in and you just kind of go from one doctor to the next. And if I could really point to one of the biggest concerns that I noted when I stopped practicing OB as to why different populations feel a lot of angst with the kind of care that they get. I feel that that is one of the dynamics that leads to problems. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult because if you come into a practice for OB care and there are four doctors and you really want one doctor to kind of get to know you, even if you understand that the other doctors will be there for your, for your delivery, it's difficult because you really don't see the same doctor. You come to the practice and you see all the different doctors. And so, I mean, that was one thing that I think that, you know, when we stopped practicing OB, one of my patients said to me, and it was really a difficult choice. It was a really difficult decision because, you know, I had done it for 20 years, um, but it came at a time when COVID had come. 
My um, eldest child had gone off to college. He was really struggling. And it really came at a point in my life where I really had to pivot and try to be more mindful about my own family and making more time. And the only way that I could do that was to give up something that I really enjoyed doing, but had become very difficult to, um, to do. So one of my patients came in and patient after patient would come in and say, oh, you guys are stopping. And one lady, you know, one of my patients looked at me and she said, who's going to take care of us? And I knew exactly what she was talking about. Yeah. And I, said, you know, I said, there are a lot of good practices. I said, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, not a lot of people, honestly, I think not a lot of people did what we did. And I think a lot of patients really didn't appreciate what they kind of had, because I think they just were used to that's how it was. Um, and they didn't realize that other practices just don't do it that way. So you kind of have to get out in the world and, yeah. and find and, and figure it out. So now, you know, when patients come in and they're my, my patients and they get pregnant, they'll ask, often ask me, you know, where should I go for my care? And I try to like point them to a group that I think will be the best, you know, mm -hmm. for them, where they live, where they might want to deliver, the kind of personality they have. And so, you know, some of that is, um, is helpful, but it's, it's really hard. It's really hard yeah. to just make an appointment and decide how am I going to feel like I can get the best care here. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's just really hard. Um, yeah. I'm glad you're sharing that perspective though, because I mean, Charlita and I, we normally talk about like the generational differences that we have. And so what you're outlining to me is also one of those generational differences because I have had that kind of care. And just like you were describing where I could come in and literally see the doctors that I wanted to see. Um, and now it sounds like it's changed where you actually rotate and see a myriad of doctors who's, who you're able to have care under. Some of the practices will see your, their patients in the hospital, I mean, in the office, but when they go to the hospital, they see people who are basically hired to just provide delivery services. So the person that delivers you may be someone you've never met. And frankly, that's actually one of the things that, that I do now that I don't do full-time OB is I work for one of the hospital systems that I may do one or two or three shifts a month and just show up and deliver someone's baby. And I'm, I'm often very surprised at how people really are accepting of that kind of dynamic. They just kind of see My me. Heart and is and, cringing. Well, yeah, they just go with the flow. Well, and it's, and it's honestly, to your point, I didn't even know it was anything different. You know, they, um, so I have a primary care doctor who I have a relationship with, but as far as the OBGYN, it was a rotating practice. And the very first kind of consultation after you got the heartbeat, it was explained, this is a rotating practice. You will likely see almost every doctor just once. And hopefully one of those doctors will deliver your baby. And so with my son, because I was induced, but it took four days for the induction to happen. I had one of the doctors that I saw in the practice the first three days, but then the fourth day, it was somebody I had never met, but oh. I had no idea whether that person was a part of the practice or not. Right. So it could have been you, it could, you know, I didn't know. Oh. So they just told you it's going to. It's going to be a stranger. And for me, I thought, okay, well, you know, this is one of those things that's out of my control. And so I have to just try to do my best to advocate and tell my story to, to every doctor. Because 
I have Crohn's disease. And so that was something that I had to make sure everyone understood that I have Crohn's disease. And, you know, that was another part of, of my worry. But with my daughter, um, I, I shared on the last episode, I was completely shocked that the midwife who went to my church, but was also a part of the rotating practice came in. Um, and that, that gave me all the relief. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that she came and she was there because the I didn't know anybody else in the room. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I appreciate you describing what that is. So I want to know how did you even decide that you wanted to be an OBGYN? <laughs> That's I mean, a funny thing, isn't it? And you know, a lot of a lot of um, physicians, you know, they kind of go to high school, college, and then they decide they want to be in medicine, or maybe they decide early in medicine, and then they do a rotation at OBGYN and just think it's great and they want to do it. I wanted to be an OB from the time I was eight years old. Um, my mom was, um, you know, a divorced woman in the early seventies with all the books out, the free to be you and me, our bodies, ourselves. See, Charlie doesn't know nothing about that. <laughs> that was back when they used to play yacht rock, but, um, she is that be, is that the is that Beyonce? <laughs> that's that's before Beyonce was still an ovum. <laughs> Long ago, we won't date ourselves. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. She, the um, she had these books all around the house, and it was all like you know, women's bodies, how to examine your breasts, the menstrual cycle, all of the anatomy of the you know female anatomy. And I literally was that kid in the neighborhood who explained the menstrual cycle to all the other little girls because, you know, their moms didn't know what to tell them. I needed you in my, I needed you in my friend circle. I know. So it's like shocking to me when I find people um, that just don't understand how their bodies work at all, or they, you know, people who grew up in cultures like my husband's West African and in their culture, you know, you don't have health class in all of these different things. And so I've come to understand that, especially people from different cultures, they don't understand things the way even like maybe an American who went to school and had a health class does. I mean, they just completely don't understand things. And so, but that's how I, that's how I got interested in it. And then as I was growing up, um, I knew I was going to be a doctor. So I knew I'd have to like math and I knew I'd have to like science and I was exposed to a lot of opportunities. Like I remember when I was in high school, there was a group for unwed, not even unwed, but teenage mothers. And um, they would learn about pregnancy and how to take care of their bodies and stuff. And my principal, knowing that I was interested in those kind of things, like I was the only person in the group who wasn't pregnant. Um, And then there was a teen pregnancy task force in Hampton. And um, I was appointed to that task force. And then when I went to college and one of my activities was I was a peer sexuality educator. So I used to work in student health and counsel okay. the other students about birth control and things like that. So it's always been something that I wanted to do. And of course, when I went to medical school, um, it was, um, you know, a natural thing for me to continue to pursue. And I'm glad that it was, you know, once I did the rotation and everything that I still really enjoyed it and wanted to do it. I love that. I, I think it is um, beautiful that you, you knew at eight. And I'm also hearing that it was celebrated, fostered, you know, that you were encouraged along the way, because I would imagine 
that there there it feels like there's more physicians of color now but probably when when you were eight like that it could have easily been one you being a girl and then two being a black girl like I think that's awesome well you know one of my biggest role models was my aunt and my aunt Wilfrida is an internal medicine physician she's retired now but she was a big role model for me because I have four aunts and my mom so there's five daughters and I have two uncles and one of my aunts is an attorney, but my other, uh, one of my aunts is a, is a physician. And she had a kind of interesting course because she went to Hampton University. Um, you. Yeah, back in the day. And she um, graduated. And I think she was a teacher. She might've been a math teacher. And her husband was in the Navy and he finished school. And I think he was an officer in the Navy. I, I probably don't know the story, but the long story short is, they got married. She always wanted to be a physician. And I think at the time it wasn't really like encouraged. She was always very bright. My grandparents knew she was very, very bright. So she ended up getting a master's degree in something like meteorology or something, because that was what they were giving out money to do. So she went and got a master's in that. She was in school for that. Her husband was in law school and she told him, you know, he knew she wanted to go to medical school. He told her, she told him, I'll wait for you to finish. And he said, no, don't wait for me to finish. You go ahead and go to medical school. So she was in med school in Philadelphia. She uh, graduated from Thomas Jefferson University. I think she might've been the first black female to graduate from there. It was something that she did that was like the first, but she, um, she went to Thomas Jefferson University and uh, medical school. And then my uncle finished law school. And sadly, when he passed the bar, he died from... Um, cancer. And so she was there. She had two children that were like eight and five, I think at the time, going through residency with these kids. And so she was someone that I really looked up to because not only had she been a mother and a brown mother, um, but she was single. She was a widow and she did all of this with help of, you know, friends helping her with her children. And she got through it and she was, um, had a very long career in Philadelphia in internal medicine and she's still alive and she's, she's doing well, but she was somebody that really instilled in me the can do attitude. Um, not only because, you know, cause people like when I went to college, I took time off between college and med school. I took four years off. I was an HIV AIDS educator in um, Virginia. I did that for like two years. I was a director of education for a year. And then I went back to UVA for a post-baccalaureate program. But people told me when I got out of high got out of college and I didn't go straight through that I was going to, like, that was a mistake. Like, you're never going to go back. But I always told them, I said, if my aunt can do it with two children as a widow after being out of school, I can do anything. And so it, to me, it never seemed like a, like a, like a crazy thing. And you know, and I'm just glad that I had those those role models, you know, to 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 emulate. Yeah, that's awesome. And thanks for sharing that background. And um, and also your family like rocks. <laughs> you all have the rock stars in your family, which I already knew that. Yeah. But I'm like, my word. So no, that's awesome. And speaking a little bit just about your journey and your path, and also for us coming together tonight just to talk about black maternal health. I did want to pose just, you know, a few questions um, from the article, um, All Hands on Deck for Black Maternal Health, written by Jean Woods, um, who's the CEO of Advocate Health. 
And uh, one of the questions that he asked that I wanted to pose to you was, why is it that Black, from everyday folks to famous athletes, are disproportionately experiencing fatal and near-death, near-fatal complications from pregnancy and childbirth? I just don't know. Yeah. I just, I mean, and like I said, when that patient looked at me and said, who's going to take care of us? I felt bad. But one thing I always felt very, um, I feel very blessed that having done it for 20 years with the women that I practiced with, we had a really good practice. Like we, I think um, the news um, featured us one year and had a little segment. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was so busy taking care of people that I just didn't really, I wasn't really aware like Mm -hmm. that all of this was happening. And it wasn't like it was a new thing, but I think you're just so busy in the grind of just like taking care of your patients and trying to do your best. And the patients got such good care and I'm not giving myself the, the, the glory for that. I mean, it's, it's God. And, and at the time it was an all black practice too. Yeah. So I will yeah. say, it's like, yeah. It's like, I just think we just took care of people because we knew them, you know, mm-hmm. we, we knew them. And I just think that that is really part of why people get good care. Like if you see the same person every week and they never complain about anything. And then that one week they come in and they say, I just feel a little bad. You start taking notice. Like you want to make sure their blood pressure is okay. Do they spill a protein? Let's, let's draw a little bit of blood work. Let's put your baby on a monitor. Let's have you come back in two days instead of a week. I mean, and those are the kind of things that you do when you see the same people or you really are listening to the same people week after week. But if you take someone and you shuffle them to the next doctor, the next doctor, and they got five minutes with you, tops, and even some of the care is being provided by the medical system because some doctor's offices, the the medical system will listen to the baby and then the doctor comes in, checks a few boxes and walks out. Like, I just don't know how that's going to do well. I just don't, Mm -hmm. I just don't know how that's going to do well. And I think that that's part of the problem. And I would also say that And I don't want to get in trouble for saying these things, but I do feel like this is, you know, my observations Mm -hmm. is that a lot of hospital practices make their hospital is the brand. You know, when you drive past a a billboard, you see this hospital's name or that hospital's name, and you see a picture of a woman holding a baby that's a stock photo, but you never see, come see this doctor, come see this doctor, come see this doctor. And so I think that also adds to this sort of level of anonymity where you're coming in, you make a phone call because you want to see someone at XYZ practice or this practice, and you're basically just put with the person who has the next availability. And if you if you ask to see someone, maybe you'll have that first visit with that person. But it's almost as if the hospital makes things such that you can't ever fall in love with one person. You got to fall in love with this is the whole facility. Mm-hmm. And so if your doctor leaves, they just kind of switch you around and, you know, and I think that that adds, a, the purpose of that is to put a little systemization to things. But I think that very systemization is what depersonalizes people and makes it such that you don't really see people as individual because the same person is not seeing that person. It's just, 
you just you just can't get to know anybody. There's no way to get to know anybody in that kind of set. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that if you go to a hospital, you'll never get to know someone, but I'm just saying yeah. if you go to a practice and you see 12 different people, nobody can know you. They cannot. They can see data and they have to understand that a data for Helen is going to be different than data for Katie. Mm-hmm. And things that Helen might experience, like for instance, if I have a patient that had um, an elevated sugar test and I'm telling her you have to come back for a three hour and she ends up being diabetic. If I have a person, a patient that's from India, a Spanish speaking country or Africa, the first thing I'm going to tell them is you, I know you eat a lot of carbs. I mean, you can just know their diet. You know, the, uh, Latinos are probably going to eat a lot of rice, tortilla traditionally, uh, Indians, rice and non, uh, chickpeas, Africans are eating, you know, fufu, rice, banku. And so if you come at them and say, we're going to need you to eat a low carb diet and you have no idea what kind of carbs they're eating, it's not going to work. You have to be able to say, you know, I've told my Ghanaian patients, okay, your ball of fufu is like this. So now you have to cut it one third and you put your big food, your small fufu in the middle of the soup and you eat it with a spoon because you can't eat, you know, and they know that I understand what they're talking about. Or like, you know, if you have someone who's eating a lot of rice, you know, you tell them half as much rice, twice as much beans or no tortilla, or you have to start with a salad or whatever the case may be. So I think you have to know people. Mm-hmm. And I think that this whole pop, this whole idea now where we're all trying to help people understand how people are different. People are so resentful of that as if it's, it's a bad thing, but the reality of it is people don't understand people. They don't understand different cultures. They don't understand what different people eat. They don't understand different people's circumstances and any attempt that we make to try to educate people to, 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 to make that better. Like not only where people generally kind of resentful in the past. Now we're going even more extreme mm-hmm. where we're trying to say, don't even say that at all. Don't even teach that at all. Don't even learn that at all. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not going to help anybody. That's no. just well, not going to help anybody. Well, and I, and I think, you know, we, we can call it out. I mean, it's not specific to medical care, right? Yeah. Whether it's education, finances, whatever, the systems weren't designed for us. It wasn't designed for our care. It wasn't designed for people to know our body types, our cultures, and all of those things. And, you know, one of the statistics that I've seen is that less than 20% of OBGYNs are Black and Latina. Hmm. So, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the care that you're giving, that is, a minority of the minorities because probably more people are having to see the majority. And if the majority is not, you know, culturally responsive, culturally relevant and, and truly trying to understand the population that they're serving, could that be one of the reasons why when it comes to black maternal care, are there different factors that are to your point, a heightened sense of awareness that you would have under your care. But if you don't know that, or if you're not taking the time to learn that, then that could be one of the reasons why everyday versus famous athletes, you know, tend to have a higher rate of um, issues. That, and if you just don't believe 
you 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 have these stereotypes ingrained in in your mind that this is how people behave or this is what they experience and you don't really humanize people to individualize them and just say when she says she's in pain you know you don't just say oh you know you're going to be fine. fine you'll be fine you'll be okay versus this other person who's going to get an epidural at one centimeter you know mm-hmm. uh, well I, I don't know where that comes from well yeah. I, I think it comes from I mean that was one of the things that scared me Dr. Freeman it comes from seeing the images of black women doing slavery or being practiced on and saying that you don't feel pain right yeah. I mean that is rooted in that and if we're not disrupting that then 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 it's still in the subconscious the strong black woman that's why I told my husband stop calling me that I don't want to be strong, you know, and so much you're hearing about black women wanting a soft life. Like we don't want to carry everything on our backs. We don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, walk around with a badge of honor saying we didn't get an epidural to, you know, like, it, like why? Um, and to your point about humanizing, and I know this is going to sound, um, and Helen's going to know, I don't want to say this, but that's why I wrote Black Boy Joy, because I felt that the images that feature little black boys did not just feature them in everyday stories. They were a thing, you know, an athlete and civil rights. And then when you don't see Black boys as people who have mamas that love them, when things happen to them, it's it, you you can put it off. And I think that's why George Floyd was so impactful to people when he called out for his mom, because that was one of the first time that people was like, that's a human who yeah. has the mama. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're treating your patients you know, do you see me as a black woman that's bringing life into the, a woman that's bringing life into the world? Or do you see me as a strong black woman that's going to tough it out? And, um, you know, so I think that there is some, there probably is some bias because there's bias everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, and I'm, I'm, I'll be very interested to see your, your uh, episode on doulas, because I think that's a, a valuable role, role that, um, for instance, a doula can play Mm-hmm. in the right setting with the right tone because um some women need an advocate for them in labor yes, yes. Um, and sometimes it would be it was it was me you know because sometimes mm-hmm. I would be there with the patient and I would come in the room and I would perceive what was happening and it would be a little intimidating to some people but I used to always tell the nurses if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing you shouldn't be intimidated you know, and patients will come back later in the office and say, well, you walked in that room, everybody just kind of, because I could see what was happening mm-hmm. and I could see what they were thinking and I could see what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And they probably weren't aware that that's what they were thinking or doing or behaving, but I could see it. And I'm sure the patient could see it, you know, and I'm not saying anything totally untoward, but just sort of, you know, things might be not the way they necessarily should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and well, so, I mean, and, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So when you walk in the room and you'd say, let's do this and let's do that. And let's make sure this is happening. And then all of a sudden everybody starts kind of running around, you know, it just kind of makes me wonder if, if you're not there, what are they doing? Or mm-hmm. if you're home and you're just waiting for the delivery, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it, it annoyed them that we were as hands-on as we were. But like I said, these are people we've taken care of for 40 weeks. And so, you know, we also wanted to come and see them every couple hours and make sure everything was right. And, 
make sure, you know, they were having a good experience and people were doing what we had told them to do. And, you know, and so when I look at the 20 year career we had, we had very good outcomes. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we had, you know, things happen, you know, every now, one patient, uh, you know, just anonymous, anonymously, I can say she came to the office postpartum and she said she had a really bad headache. And I think her blood pressure was normal. And I remember my partner sent her to the hospital because she had this bad headache. And anybody else would have said, you know, you're just tired. She had um, an aneurysm. She uh, she had an aneurysm. And it was like a young person. And it was just kind of like weird stuff like that, where I realized some of the weirdest stuff that we would pick up would be somebody just complaining about something that seemed non-essential I mean like not that big of a deal mm-hmm. like my legs are swollen come in everybody I remember like you know we always were like come in for everything everybody would come in for everything baby's not moving come in mm-hmm. I think I have some di- come in this is happening come in and we would see everybody in the office and I mean it's the personalization for me I mean is what I'm hearing and feeling and I've it's so important just to have that that known factor, you see me, you understand me, you validate what I'm saying. All of those things are a part of my care. And you're tuned into me, even if I don't know what's going on really, but you are seeing me and tuning into the things that I may not be aware of. And not only are you advocating for me, you're also saying, you know what? We're going to provide you with an extra level of care because we are going to share this and we want you to go, like you said, be seen here, but then we want you to go and be seen some other place if that's needed. And I think it's important, and I keep bringing this up, that's everywhere. That's everything. It's not specific to the medical. I agree. We know representation matters. We know we want to be affirmed. We know we want to be heard. And I think that that is you know, obviously progressing and getting better, but we are still fighting for for voice mm-hmm. and representation in a lot of spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, this is good. This is good. It just, it just really makes me sad that some people just see as that as threatening. Like they mm-hmm. don't see the value in that, you know, mm-hmm. that it just makes everything so much better for everybody, you know. But mm-hmm. but let's call it, call it out. Why Why do people see it as a threat? Because there is power, right, in being the majority and being the one in control. And when you start seeing people that you could potentially view as marginalized, Black and a woman, coming in with the same amount of influence or more, that is a threat when it shouldn't be a threat. Because if you are centering the patient and what's best for the patient and doing what, like you said, Dr. Freeman, the right thing, it shouldn't be a threat. But- Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff is still rooted in everything is white supremacy. And so I think that we ought to just call it out. But I want to say this because um, to your point that that you made earlier, when I texted my midwife that was in the rotating practice, so like he said, all the numbers and told her, you know, hey, I'm I'm here. And she said, who's there? And then she came in and then redid the whiteboard of names. And I will never forget that. That instance, and then when she did not leave, she did not let the doctor leave because I was hemorrhaging. I didn't know I was, I mean, so to your point about what's happening, I didn't know that. 
but I know that the doctor kept trying to leave and she kept saying, no, she's no, let's keep doing, you know, and there, I had no idea, but I was like, why are they taking so long to pick me up? But she kept saying, no, 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 no. And I kept Mm -hmm. thinking, what if she was not there? Mm -hmm. That that doctor probably would have left. Okay. I'm still team. I got to know my doctor. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but I mean, I didn't even know practices like yours existed, Dr. Freeman one. And then with my son, who I had in 2017, I didn't even know what a doula was. Mm -hmm. So I Mm -hmm. think to your point, and I hope for any first time or potential first time moms are out there, we don't have enough of these conversations to like educate you on what you're going to. You are putting all your faith and trust in your, your, your physicians. And so if, if you don't have the social network of people you know, because a lot of times when you start having a baby, everybody's having a baby. So nobody knows. It's like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> so we don't have like, that's why I love our podcast, because, you know, I get to learn, you know, from Helen and Helen gets to learn from me too. I like a lot about Beyonce, but, uh, <laughs> but I love that because we need that. I mean, that's also biblical, right? And the Bible says that women should be doing that. We should be mm-hmm. training the next woman. And I think that, you know, I can't say enough why I think it's powerful to share our stories instead of people saying that they should, you shouldn't because you don't want to scare the person, mm-hmm. but you should be prepared. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. prepared that you wear diapers afterward. Like that, I had no idea that that was a thing. And that bothered me, right? Because I didn't like, you know, nobody likes it, but if somebody had talked about it, it wouldn't have been such a shock. It wouldn't have been such a postpartum factor. And the same happens when you have a C-section too. So I just want people to know. So did you wear the, the diapers? Yes, yes. Even after it's, it's it's the same. I know people are like, oh, but you're just getting stitched and you should be fine. I'm like, no, 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 no. It it all still happens. And and I've had yeah. every kind of delivery. So I've had a vaginal first, a C-section second, a vaginal birth after a C-section third, and a repeat C-section fourth. Oh, wow. So oh, they're like, I don't, you don't understand. I guess I do. Because yeah. the primary section, I had placenta previa, where, you know, your placenta implants, mm-hmm. your cervix was with my second one, Hannah. But I'll tell the, that primary section where I just laid down and had a C-section was better any day mm-hmm. than that first delivery with all of those stitches. Mm-hmm. Oh, but that's another reason why, for me, I want a female, you know, OBGYN. I, I that's my preference because I want someone also who's been a mom who has experienced birth because then they can share more information with me. Um, and I know some people are like, well, I mean, why is that important to you? I, I just said, I don't know. It, it just is. I, I need someone who has had lived experience in this and can share that knowledge. And I will say, you know, because not all women OBGYNs are, have children or yep. have shared that. And then some men are very good at what they're doing and very, you know, kind and, and considerate. But, you know, I do feel like for me in my practice, there's a lot of value in kind of understanding, like even sometimes when I'm now I'm doing pep smears all day that I have to remember what it feels like to have this speculum in, you know, mm-hmm. because sometimes you're just kind of like, you know, and you have to realize like, wait a minute, this, this it's a vagina and it hurts. Not a sign. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Slow down a little bit. <laughs> but yeah. you know, I think um, w- what you said, Helen, around just wanting 
someone that has lived experiences. Um, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know with my son. And so I had him with my primary care doctor. Um, so I didn't do a pediatrician because I felt like it was just so much change. And I was like, I, this is the person I have the relationship with. I switched and my current pre- pediatrician, Dr. Colleen Black, I love the fact that she's got little kids too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're in the same space. And, you know, no matter what moms say, I do feel like moms forget. Um, they forget what it's like. I feel like I have to constantly tell people I have a two-year-old. And not only do I have a two-year-old, I am 39 with the two-year-old. Like, so all my friends' kids are like 10 plus. And they're like, let's do this. Let's do that. I'm like, my kid is in diapers. Okay. So it's like, but even though people don't, even a mom sometimes can get far away from what it's like being in the trenches with a two-year-old. And so I like the fact that my pediatrician has kids that are under 10 years old because mm-hmm. I know she understands what it means when I call her every week asking her if a bump on my kid's face is <laughs> it's cancer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm yeah. Te- I'm teasing. I don't do that. But but she does call her often. So <laughs> she tells you when she calls. <laughs> yes, she calls her often. <laughs> so yes. Well, I just want to thank you for having this conversation. I mean, we could literally be here like, I don't know, two hours just talking about black maternal health, um, just our own health, our own experiences, the experiences of others making certain that um, there's value in having not only doctors of color who can also take care of people of color, but even heightening that message so that all doctors kind of see us, you know, in a human frame. And so just really appreciate you taking the time uh, and sharing all of that uh, with us. Uh, How can we get in contact with you? I mean, you know, let us know. Okay. Well, my office is in the Arboretum area. Um, it's Arboretum Gynecology. If you call our number 704-341-1103, you can make an appointment. And then our website is um, www.arboretumgyn.com. And we're on Facebook as well. So that's awesome. in Charlotte because we're worldwide. So we need to qualify. Yes. This is Charlotte. It's in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I have patients that fly in from Florida and other parts of the country. They've moved and they come to see me. So and that's um, because you're special. I'm telling you, I ne- I did not know this existed until we just talked just now. And we just pick up right where we left off the year. I before. love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've really enjoyed and it's, you know, one of the joys of my life taking care of women this long. Um, some of my patients I've been taking care of the entire 21 years I've been here. They're now, they've gone from, you know, 20 year olds to 40 year olds and I'm now starting to take care of some of the children that I have delivered as young women, 17, 18, 19. It's really amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. So women in all stages of life. So we start, you know, anywhere from 13, 14, all the way up to, I think my oldest patient might now be 88. Mm -hmm. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This has really been a wonderful experience being able to just share this information with you. And I hope I was helpful to some extent. Oh, yes, definitely so. Yeah. yeah, And and so I'm putting you on the spot. I feel like you got to come back because although we talked a lot, you know, about more about labor delivery pregnancy, I think there is value and, you know, just talking about women's health 
And yeah. I would love to to have you back to explore some of those topics because as Any a cliffhanger, day. I don't have a gynecologist. I've do, I just do everything with my primary care. And so now after talking to you, I'm thinking like, should I have yeah. a second doctor? So I feel like we need to talk about how do we take care of ourselves? Like that's like a, a whole episode. That and one thing I advocate is that, and, and it's, it'll say it in our one couple of our ads, is that most private insurances will cover for you to see your primary care doctor and your GYN doctor. And and you so you can see both in the same year. And I, of course, I would advocate that because I'm a gynecologist and I like to have my own patients. But also, you know, no doctor can do everything. Because even if I see you for your general GYN needs, if you have a specialized GYN issue, you know, I may even send you to a subspecialist in GYN. And so I think as women get older too, especially, especially, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, perimenopause, even postmenopause, there are a lot of issues that come up that really primary care doctors may not have time to discuss. And that's one of the things that I find is the is the best part about my job is talking about, you know, women as they change and different things that you might need physically, hormonally as we get older. And so that's what we do as gynecologists that maybe your primary care doctor, you know, may not have time to do. So it's just more, it's more than just doing your pap smear. Yeah. Well, thank you for that nugget. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed spending time with you. Um, thank you for hearing us and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. Um, I would love to hear from um, our, our listeners how you felt about the conversation and what you want to know more of. So please feel free to like, comment, or subscribe uh, to the Behind the Throne podcast wherever you're listening. And we will talk to you later. Thanks, y'all. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening to the Behind the Throne podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our channel and comment below with your feedback. Check out future episodes from us as we discuss motherhood from babies to adults.